Let me begin by saying that our passage today is set in a very dark time for the people of God. The leaders of the people of God were less like loving shepherds and more like the mafia, extorting their own people for their own selfish gain. And, uh, you know, as I was meditating on the passage today, I was indeed listening to the Godfather soundtrack. And so that's been going through my head. But the leaders were causing the suffering of God's people. They were not being led by men after God's own heart. And they were not being led by the word of God. But, friends, did you know that God will not stand for leaders who serve at their own pleasure? God will not stand for leaders who serve at their own pleasure when they are to serve for his. And so you already hear the theme of God's honor, his glory. God does not stand for leaders who serve at their own pleasure when they ought to be serving for his. So from today's, from today's passage, we see what happens when the true shepherd, that is God, the Lord, sees wolves among his sheep. What does God do? You know, a couple of weeks ago from 1 Samuel chapters 1 to 2, we saw that God cares about the suffering of his people, right? We saw that God cares about the suffering of his people at an individual level. Well, today we see that God cares about the suffering of his people at a national level. So we're looking at the people of Israel. Let me invite you to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 2, which can be found, if you're using one of those Bibles there in front of you, it can be found on page 226, if you're using one of the Bibles provided for you. 226. Uh, First and Second Samuel are books that have a lot of drama, a lot of drama. So you got individual drama, you got political drama, you got sinful drama, and so many stories. There are so many stories in First and Second Samuel that I'm sure if we listed them, you know, it's going to ring a bell. Such as Saul wanting to kill his own son-in-law, that is David. Right? You have David and Goliath going to battle against one one another. The giant versus this. relatively small man but there there are so many stories about jealousy of rage of immorality and by god's grace stories of victory but in general if you're looking for sort of like a summary of what first and second samuel uh summarizes it's all about god's old testament people transitioning to a kingship this is all about the transition to a kingship so they were to be a theocracy what that is they were to be ruled by god but here they transition to a monarchy. That is, they are, they are now ruled by a king, an earthly king. The book is named after Samuel. He's not the author, but he's the first main character of the book. So the first main character of the book is Samuel. Then the next main character is Saul. And the next main ter- character is David. And the beginning of the book focuses our attention on a little family in the back country who suffers. Particularly, the one who's suffering is a gal named Hannah. She suffers, as we saw earlier, physiologically, right? She can't have any children. She is barren. And then she suffers relationally because her husband's other wife rubs her barrenness in her face. But she, in the midst of her suffering, does not retaliate. Instead, she goes to meet with God. And so she prays to God, uh, pleading with him that God himself would give her a child. And And he answers. He does. And he gives her a boy named samuel 
And as she is the godly woman, what she prays for, uh, she just offers right back up to the Lord. Lord, if you grant me a child, I will give him right back to you so that he would serve you, the Lord, over all. And so Samuel serves in the presence of God. God cares about the suffering of his people on an individual level. But then as we turn today, he also cares about the suffering of his people on a national level. Let's go ahead and look at bad leaders over God's people, bad leaders over God's people. If you're taking notes, this is our first point, bad leaders over God's people. If we take a step back in relation to that individual family and look at the period of time, the events here in this in the early part of first Samuel take place in once again, a dark, dark time in the history of God's people. The period is the period of the judges. So just think of the book Judges. And the Bible says in Judges 21, 25, there was no king over the people. And everyone did what was right in their own eyes. God's people have rejected their creator. That's not good. They had set aside his law. They had set aside his word and had chosen instead to live for their own glory. And so if you turn to 1 Samuel chapter 3, go ahead and turn over there. 1 Samuel chapter 3. We see what the, re- what the result of these things was. We see what happens when people set aside God's word. Look at the last half of verse one. It says there, and you're going to need your Bible. So I encourage you to definitely open your Bibles. We want to see you guys ought to be checking to see if what I'm saying is accurate. Last half of verse one, it says, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. Most likely, friends, this absence of the word of the Lord was a sign actually of God's own judgment. In the Old Testament, when the Lord helped his straying people, he would send to them a prophet to herald the word of God and to call them to repent of their sins, to call them to turn back to the Lord. But in this dark period, it seems the Lord withdrew his word, as one person said, allowing Israel to wander in the darkness that she apparently preferred. So the people want and God just says, "Okay, look, if you want that, then I'll give you over to that. And so he withdraws his word that they already had set aside. And so there was a so-called famine of the word of God. There was a famine of the word of God. And you see this in in another book of Amos, chapter eight, verses 11 to 12. You don't have to turn there, but just listen. You can write it down, look at it later. God says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land. But get this, it is not, quote, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst of water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. That's the famine here. It's the famine of the word of the Lord. God's very people had rejected his word, and so God had withdrawn it from them. You know, in relation to the chaos in this dark period of time for God's people, it's not hard to imagine the chaos that ensues when those who need wisdom... Start living according to their own. They live as if they are kings unto themselves. They're gods really unto themselves. I mean, just imagine us here, First Baptist Church. Just imagine the chaos if each person decided to set aside God's morality and his law, the fact that, that he defines what is good and right, and instead we started living according to our own desires. I did this little exercise with our children yesterday at, at the dinner table, right? What if there was no law that where God said, thou shalt not kill or thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not commit adultery, and instead we started to rewrite things. In fact, murder was good. And you got the, you got the opportunity to determine this for yourselves. Just imagine the chaos. Just let that play out just for a little bit here. If we all lived as gods unto ourselves. 
Just imagine if you had what everybody, what everybody else wanted. If you had the woman that other people wanted. If you had the money that other people wanted. If you had the job that other people wanted. Just let that play out just a little bit. If you were gods unto yourselves and you had the opportunity to live according to your own wisdom as you defined it. First Baptist Church would not be a safe place. Everybody would be a threat. This is the chaos that's going on in the period of the judges. Everyone had become a threat. Sadly, when it comes to this time period, it was those in positions of leadership that took advantage of the chaos. And instead of feeding and caring for the sheep on behalf of the true shepherd, they butchered and fed on the sheep. Look at chapter 2, verses 12 to 17. I'll go ahead and read that. Chapter 2, verses 12 to 17. Now, the sons of Eli were worthless men. Eli was the high priest. He was the leader over Israel. The sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servants would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give me meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. But if the man said to him, Let them burn the fat first and then take as much as you wish, he would say, No, you must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young man was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Let me understand. Let me explain this background so you understand their offenses. Remember, this is like the mafia here. God had said that when his people went up to offer animal sacrifices to the Lord, a portion of the meat was to be reserved for the priests for the service. They had the opportunity to take the bread, the breast and then the right leg, according to Leviticus chapter seven. But what's going on here is that the priest would demand so much more. In fact, anything that he wanted to, the priests, it said, would, the Bible says, would send out his servant. And even before the sacrificial meal was plated and the fingerprints were wiped, so to speak, from the plate, the servant would come along, thrust his three pronged fork into whatever dish he wanted and take the spoils back to the priest's quarters. If the people wanted to obey the Lord and offer sacrifices according to God's law by letting the fat be burned first as an offering to the Lord. This is also in the law. Leviticus said that that's what's supposed to happen. You see what the servant would do? Look there in verse 15. You see what they would do? He would give them an offer they couldn't refuse. The end of verse 16, he would take it by force. They take advantage of God's people's resources to fatten themselves. And if there is resistance, the priests step on the people of God. But that's not it, right? So, so you see here, they're taking whatever they're wanting. They're, they're taking the resources. That's not only it. You look at, uh, you look at uh, verse 22, and you see here that the priests, like beasts, are taking advantage of the bodies of women. Not only are they taking resources, but they're taking the bodies of women. Look at verse 22. Eli is very old. He kept hearing all that his sons were doing in all of Israel and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. 
So this is not Canaanite pagan religion here, which we know that there was some sort of priestly prostitutes and things like that. In the book of Exodus, it says that women did indeed serve according to God's law at the tent of meeting. And he said to them, verse 23, why do you do such things for I hear of your evil dealings from all the people? So it's very clear. These are evil sons. And they are feeding. They're not only feeding their stomachs, but they're feeding their carnality. You got to see how wicked this is, right? These women were to serve at the Lord's temple according to the Lord's law, serving at the Lord's pleasure to his honor. Those people who want to gather at the temple to meet with the Lord. And these women, according to Exodus, are supposed to help them do this in some sort of way. It's not sexually at all. But yet the priests turn them into pieces of meat. The priests use them as if it is their presence that was the only ones that mattered, not the Lord's. This is absolutely wicked. But of course, you see how they're preying on the people, preying on the people's resources, preying on their own bodies. Of course, these circumstantial sins, right, what they're doing with the food and with the women's bodies, they're symptoms of a systemic problem of the heart, aren't they? You know this, too, from your own issues. We do things out of the overflow of the heart. And so we don't want to tackle the symptoms, but we want to tackle the heart itself. And though the Lord is their creator, though the Lord is their maker, though the Lord had given them their positions of authority, though he is the ruler over all people, they have nothing but disregard for this God. And so the occasion, you notice the occasion chosen to seize the people's resources. You see how wicked this is. The occasion chosen to seize the people's resources. It's the worship of the Lord. This is the yearly sacrificial feast that they are taking advantage of the people. And not only that is all the Israelites that come up, right? They, they're preying on all of the Lord's people. They eat sacrifices belonging to the Lord. They bully those belonging to the Lord. They sexually abuse others who minister on behalf of the Lord. And they do all of this using their God-given position of authority. As priests who were to serve on behalf of the Lord... To honor God, but instead they honor themselves. These priests, friends, you recognize that these priests have set themselves up against the Lord. This reminds me of some supposed Christian pastors who do the same thing. They pray on the people of God in the name of the Lord. Whether it be stealing their money, saying, look, if you come and buy this thing, then the blessings of the Lord are going to come uh, for you forever. When Jesus says that if you follow him, it's going to be a difficult life. There will be cost involved. I was talking to one visitor at the church and he just instinctually knew that his pastor who drove a Ferrari, there's something wrong with that. And then there's also something wrong when uh, when the church raised money for a specific something, and then the pastor went and did something else with that money. And, and then so you see that there's, there's, there's all these issues here of people who are preying upon the people of the Lord. And it was just as it was here in 1 Samuel, so it is even today, where men, unfortunately, and in their sin, desire to honor themselves as opposed to the Lord, who is Lord over all. These priests and those pastors have set themselves up against the lord this becomes very clear as the story moves forward look at verse 27 uh actually i'll go ahead and read 
the rest of Eli's rebuke. Look there in verse 24. Eli says to his sons, No, my sons, it is not good. It is no, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. Now, 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 Eli is kind of an interesting character. We don't know if, if you know, he's a genuine follower of Yahweh. I think maybe he is. But you, you see that he's hearing from the people about the offenses of his son when he is the very one who is, is receiving some of the spoil of the sacrifices. Something's going on here. He is a negligent leader. At best, at best he is. But then, uh, you know, on one hand, he's rebuking his son, so it's kind of hard to make of his, his character here. He, he rebukes them. Verse 25, if someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. We'll explain this later. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now, the young man Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. Now, if you look at verse 27 and sort of skim down here, God sends a man of God, which is a word for a prophet, a phrase that describes a prophet. He sends his man of God to rebuke the priests by reminding them of their role, their God given role. It's the very thing that the very thing that they had set aside in verse 28. Look there. Uh, this man of God speaking on behalf of the Lord says, did I choose him? That is the father uh, here. We're thinking of Aaron. Did I choose Aaron? most likely out of all the tribes or Levi out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me. I gave to the house of your father, all my offerings with fire from the people of Israel. So here he is reminding them that they are chosen of God, right? This priestly line that came from the line of Aaron. It was a privileged position. And as priests, they were to represent the people before the Lord. You got to keep that in mind here. That's what's going on here. It's not only about animals and incense. stuff like that. This is about representing the people before the Lord and representing God to the people. That was their role here to be ministers of God to the people. That's what all this temple sacrifice is all about. The holy God had created the temple in order to meet with his sinful people. If you guys remember this from the book of Exodus that we went through not too long ago. Uh, but God had created man. In the beginning, man had rebelled against him by sinning against him, and God cast him out of the garden. The question, therefore, is if man has earned God's just judgment, ultimately judgment in hell, how exactly are people going to get back into fellowship with their creator? If we have committed treason and set, us, set ourselves up as king to receive all glory and honor for ourselves and not God, stealing God's glory, how then do we get right with God? Well, the wonderful thing, friend, is that God in his love and his grace and his mercy says, okay, even though you are running away from me, I'm going to pursue you and I'm going to meet with you again. But it's going to be on my conditions, not yours. And so he sets up this temple and in the temple sacrifices, they are supposed to be reminded of the fact that he is the God who forgives, who atones for people's sins through the blood of a sacrifice, which points forward to Jesus. They're supposed to be reminded that God is the creator over all. And so even the things like burning fragrant incense up, which it refers to there in verse 28, you imagine that the, the fragrant incense goes up to the creator over everything. You are, they're also supposed to be reminded that he is a holy God, right? They're supposed to wear this ephod, which is like, it was just a lesson to teach the people that when you come into the Lord's presence, you come into a holy Lord's presence. 
And so their garments were supposed to be set aside. They were supposed to wear this unique piece of garment called an ephod. And on the ephod, it bore uh, the names of the 12 tribes on these stones that the, that the high priest wore. And so when the high priest went in to meet with God, he went on behalf of all of the 12 tribes before the Holy Lord, their very creator. That's what they're supposed to be reminded about all this stuff about the sacrifices, the, the ephod and, and such. That's how they are to meet with God. And the, the priests here set that aside. And that's why the Lord sends a prophet, the man of God, to remind them, did I not make you human mediators, so to speak, to minister on my behalf of sinful people? So this is the summary, right? They are to make offerings to the Lord. That's why it kind of rises there at the end of 28. Look there. I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people. This is meeting with God. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings? That phrase there, my sacrifices and my offerings. You should think about that in light of the big picture whole. This is the sacrificial system, that which God himself set up so that a holy God would meet with his sinful people, that they would have fellowship once again. But what Eli and more, more so Hophni and Phinehas honored... What they honored more so was not the Lord, but themselves, right? The sins were particularly heinous because once again, they were sins against God himself, the Lord himself, the God of the people, the God of the sacrifices. Did you notice the, the possessives there in 29? Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I myself commanded and you honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of everything of my people Israel? You see that possessive there. The Lord is determined to remind them that he is the Lord. This is blatant disregard of God on behalf of Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas. This is why we have the summary of their character in 2.12. Look there in 2.12. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. Now, in what sense are they worthless men? Well, it's, look at the next sentence. They did not know the Lord. It's ironic that these so-called worthless men judged the Lord's law to be worthless. But did you notice it wasn't only Hophni and Phinehas that are the guilty ones? Who is the man of God speaking to in 27? He's speaking to Eli. Eli's problem, and then you can look at verse 29 once again. Why do you scorn? This is Eli he's talking to. Why do you scorn by doing these things? Eli's problem is honoring his sons above me. And then turn over to 3.13. Turn over to 3.13. Let's see his sin expanded. 3.13. And I declare to him that I am... This is God speaking to Samuel. And I declare to him that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. He knew that they were blaspheming God, yet he did nothing about it. This is instructive. You know, many of us come from backgrounds, cultural backgrounds, where what is ultimate, excuse me, where what is ultimate is the bond of blood. But we see here that the bond of blood is actually not what is the ultimate bond. There is a more important, more ultimate bond that we all should be tending to. And it is not blood. It is the creature creator bond here. 
Eli was responsible for something and he failed. That something was not keeping unity amongst his family at all costs. That's not what he was responsible for. His responsibility was to honor and give glory to the Lord at all costs. Which involves so much more than this half-hearted rebuke about the sins of his sons. I hear that it is not good that you are sleeping with the Lord's people and taking advantage of them. That's that's so half-hearted right there. Unity of family is to never supersede unity with the Lord. It is not intended to be preserved over unity with the Lord. We are supposed to, therefore, honor the Lord over all, no matter the cost. Eli, at best, is seen as a weak and often ungodly character who loves his boys over the Lord. And the wake of his sin goes farther than he even knows, doesn't he? Doesn't it? It's not just towards him and his sons. It's obviously getting his sons in trouble with the Lord. But then it's all of Israel. The women who serve at temple, they are affected by his sin. The people, all of the people are affected by his sin. In terms of an application to all leaders, you know, the sins of Eli and his sons, you know, as they're right before us, we are to be reminded that God's leaders are not to do what they want, but instead are, are supposed to lead according to God's word and for his honor. Very basic point. And even though Eli and his sons fulfill a very specific role, did you know that their heart problems, so think of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas, right? Their heart problems are representative of all of our heart problems. God designed all people to live for his glory and according to his rule, according to his good word. But in sin, in our sin, right, we disregard God. We choose instead to live according to our own rule and we live for our own glory. Why? So we can imagine God saying to us, why do you scorn my kingship and my rule and take advantage of my created people? On some level, we are all Hophni's and Phineas's, aren't we, at heart, apart from the grace of God. In our own sin, we want to honor ourselves, and so we rob God of his glory. And this has serious consequences. I was talking to one person who said that he just wants to be God. And he just admits it. He said, I want to be God. I want to do what I want to do and have nobody stop me. Friends, that is setting yourself up against God. That's using the very life and breath that God himself has given you, your very heart rate to to live not for your creator, but instead to live for your very own self. And this can be done in such slight and subtle ways. You could even be the greatest moralist that the world would know, that we at First Baptist would know, and you could still be living against the glory of God. Because if you're boasting in your own morality, friends, you're not boasting in God's. And so in so doing, you are setting yourself up against God. And what does God do towards Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas? God judges them. Look at 30 and 36, 30 through 36. I'll read that. Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel declares, I promised that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me. So there they're thinking of the priestly line, the tribe of Levi. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me for those who honor me, I will not honor. Or sorry, far be it from me for those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength. Now he's speaking to Eli's house in particular. I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house 
so that there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress you will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel, and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart, and all the descendants of your house shall die by the swords of men. And this that shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be the sign to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. And everyone who is left in your house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread and shall say, please put me in one of those priest places that I may eat a morsel of bread. This is a very specific judgment on the house of Eli. God promises there in 31 and then 33 that the strength of Eli's house will be cut down. uh, That as they live, there would not be an old man in their house. And then the confirmation sign of God's judgment is that that Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, would die together. And here we see a great reversal of fortunes, which Hannah, if you are mindful of chapter 2, had spoke of earlier. As she sings this great hymn of thanksgiving, there is God's reversal of fortunes that he will bring about according to his glory. That the wicked will be judged, even though they are supposedly great, even though they are so well fed, they will be brought low. And here, the all-important house of Eli is being prophesied to be brought low. And there's, there's irony, right? Those who used others to feed themselves will go on hungry. They're going to beg, put me here so I can eat just a piece of morsel of bread. But even in the midst of judgment, we praise God because we see also a hint of grace. We see that uh, there will be one who will not be cut off, which is fulfilled uh, later on. We see in the book of Kings through one certain individual. And then we see there too in in, uh, verse 35, I will build him a sure house and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. We see that fulfilled later on. In the book of first Kings, this is prophecy, remember, but in general, the house will be judged. So there's something more significant than temporal judgment, right? This is temporal judgment, the house, the line, their spiritual judgment. The cost of their sin is that Hophni and Phinehas in particular would be spiritually cut off from God. They would be cut off from God and no one would plead their case before God himself. You look there at verse 25 at Eli's rebuke. Eli speaking to his sons. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? He's saying, look, if you sin against people, right, while still trying to honor God, while still loving God, someone can mediate for you. That's, that's a good thing. But then he turns and says, but if... I don't, if you don't give a rip about the God of grace, who, of course, is going to mediate for you? If I have absolute disregard for the one true mediator, no one is going to mediate for you. They are blaspheming God. That's their sin here. That's a helpful way to understand this verse. The point is that Hophni and Phinehas rejected the God of salvation, and therefore they will not be saved. This is not about, uh, you know, us today wondering, can we lose our salvation or can we not? Can we sin in such a way where Jesus Christ will not finally intercede for us? Although we can, uh, we will apply that in terms of how we ought to understand this in light of today. 
Look at the last half of verse 25. He says, But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. You see the hardness of heart there on the sons. They, they would not listen to the rebuke of, rebuke of their father because the Lord willed to put them to death for the sins that they had committed uh, earlier, right? They despised God. They took advantage of the people. They disregarded God. They didn't give a rip about a holy God and his sacrificial system. The sins of willfully refusing and rejecting God, God therefore chooses to put them to death. If you're visiting with us and know yourself not to be a follower of Jesus, this is instructive for us. What is it that puts a person beyond the saving grace of God? What is it that puts somebody beyond the saving grace of God? The simple answer, friends, is an ongoing willful rejection of God. An ongoing willful rejection of God. That was Hophni and Phineas's problem. God alone, right, was the mediator who provided sacrifices of atonement. They just didn't care. And in an ongoing willful way, they scorned God and his word. They set God aside on the shelf. Friends, you see how uh, this atoning sacrifice points to Jesus, right? We're thinking on this side of the cross after Christ has come. All the sacrifices of the Old Testament were pictures of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We know from the book of Hebrews that it was not the blood of bulls and goats that could take away sin, but the blood of the final sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And 1 Timothy 2.5 says, There is one mediator between God and men. Christ Jesus. He is the eternal Son of God, sent by the Father to be a great high priest, the great high priest who ministers to men. He is the one who goes before the face of the Father, who wins atonement for sins by his own blood. He is the one who lived a perfect life, who shed his own blood, who got up from the dead, showing that payment has been made, and everybody who repents of their sins and turns to Christ will in fact be saved. He wins forgiveness for people. And so we are saved by grace. And so we are not to scorn Jesus Christ and his work. We are not to scorn God's sacrifice, but we embrace God's work and God's sacrifice on our behalf because we couldn't do it anyways. We can't get ourselves out of the trouble that we dug ourselves into. Of course, we rely on the sovereign grace of God to bring us free and full forgiveness. The New Testament shows that if you hear this gospel, it is not too late to repent of your sins and believe. And so the word says, if you hear the words of God today, friends, turn and be saved and you will indeed be forgiven of your sins. You recognize, friends, that that the church is made up of sinners who formerly opposed God. That's the key here. Formerly opposed God. Hophni and Phinehas were persistent in their blaspheming of the Lord. We all here blasphemed God. We were all rejectors of the one true God until God saved us as we repented of our sins and believed upon him. And so we are forgiven of our sin. And so if you are a Christian, your sin is not persistent, nor is it willful. And if it is, then we're going to call you to repent and believe. But the very fact that you would repent and believe in an ongoing sense means that you are not like Hophni and Phinehas. They did not know the Lord. They did not care about the Lord. And they set God aside. Hophni and Phinehas are our examples. They chose to live a life of deliberate rejection of God. But friends, that does not have to be your choice. 
God calls rebellious sinners to repent. He invites us to turn back. We are those who once lived a sinful life, but who have once again turned to the Lord. And you see, just as God had set up the sacrificial system, so it's fulfilled. We see his love, not only in the sacrificial system, but in what it points to, that is Jesus. As God the Father sends Christ to die on the cross so that we would know him and so that we would meet with him and know his love when we deserve nothing but his condemnation and hell. So we see the grace and mercy and the love of God as he pursues sinners and calls us to repent and believe. This, should, this account should encourage us as Christians. Even though the situation was indeed bleak, God would not abandon his people. He would not let his people be led by worthless men. And in the period where everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes, the favor of the Lord rested on this one little boy named Samuel. So we have seen bad leaders over God's people. That's point number one. Now we look at God's leader for his people. God's leader for his people. That's point number two. God's leader for his people. Amidst all this leadership darkness, there are sprinkles of leadership light in Samuel. Here to read the account straight through, you do, you do see these interesting little comments here about this boy. You look at 128. It says there, he, that is Samuel, worshipped the Lord. It says there at the end of 28, and he worshipped the Lord there at the temple. You look at 211, turn over there. It says there, and the boy was ministering to the Lord. Now contrast that with the evil sons of Eli, right? What is this little boy doing? He is ministering to the Lord. And then 2.18, Samuel once again was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod. 2.21, and the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Verse 2.26, chapter 2.26. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with men. Samuel, by all accounts here, is the foil, the opposite to Eli and his sons. The father, Eli, and his sons, they dishonor the Lord. But the mother, Hannah, and then her son, they honor the Lord. And look at 18 to 21. Now, keep in mind, this is sandwiched in between this sort of the evil of Eli's worthless sons. Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod. And his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah. And his wife and say, may the Lord give you children by this woman for the for the petition she asked of the Lord. So then they would return to their home. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the young man, Samuel, grew in the presence of the Lord. So it's interesting the contrast that you see between uh, between uh, Hannah and her son, Samuel, and what the Lord is doing in her house. And then what's going on with Eli and his sons. So in, in 19, you have a mother's love. And then in 22, you have a father's sorrow. In 20, you have Eli's blessing. In verses 23 to 25, you have Eli's rebuke. In verse 21, you have Yahweh's provision, the granting of life. But in verse 25b, you have Yahweh's purpose of judgment and death. In 21b, you have Samuel's growth. And then also in 26, you have Samuel's growth, making us wonder, like, who is this man? We see here God's good leader over his people. Samuel embraces God's role for him as the one who ministers before the Lord. I think that's what's going on in the details of 18 to 21 with, with Hannah bringing him the little robe, this little ephod. You see, you see this when it's contrasted between or in between uh, the worthless sons. 
you get this wonderful story of this mother caring for her son, even making him the right type of clothing. And the ephod was what the priest wore. Keep that in mind. I think that's what's going on here. You, you contrast that to verse 28, where, where the man of God rebukes Eli and his sons, saying, did I not call you and choose you to wear the ephod before me? It's like they despise the ephod. They don't care about being priests of the Lord on behalf of the people to intercede on behalf of the people before the Lord. But here's the little boy, Samuel and Hannah, taking the care to bring the robe to him every single year. So Samuel here, he's learning to embrace the very things that the wicked priests have rejected. Not only that, not only does Samuel embrace God's role for him, Samuel learns to hear and speak the word of God. Samuel learns to hear and speak the word of God. You look at chapter 3, verses 1 to 18. Actually, let's look at 1 to 14. Now, the young man Samuel was ministering to the Lord under Eli. And the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out. So what that means, the reason why that's there is because it's talking about that, that this is like before dawn, right? The lamp's supposed to burn all night. This is the lamp of God had not yet gone out. Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord, right? Where is he? He's lying down right there where God comes to meet with sinful people, where the ark of God was, the ark of the covenant, which symbolized atonement sacrifice where God meets with his people. Then the Lord called Samuel and he said, here I am. So you get this, this idea of this eagerness on behalf of this little boy who serves in the presence of the Lord. And he ran to Eli and said, here I am, for you called me. But he, that is, Eli said, I did not call. Lie down again. So it almost sounds like he's frustrated at this little boy, like a parent being woken up by his child, as many of us know what that's like. So he went and lay down. And the Lord called again Samuel. And Samuel rose and went to Eli and said, here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call my son. Lie down again. Now, Samuel did not yet know the Lord and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. Now, that's that when he says that Samuel doesn't know the Lord, that's a diff, in a different way than Hophni and Phinehas. Here is just saying that <clears throat> the Lord God did not reveal himself to Samuel as he did, let's say, to the judges with a man of the Lord or the Lord just appears and speaks to him. Verse eight. <clears throat> and the Lord called Samuel again the th- third time. And he arose and went to Eli and said, here I am, for you called me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the young man. Therefore, Eli said to Samuel, go lie down. And if he calls you, you shall say, speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. Eli is a tragic figure. Once again, he is a priest dull to the word of the Lord, isn't he? He seems almost inconvenienced inconvenience once again by Samuel interrupting his sleep. Now contrast that with the little boy Samuel, who is growing in his eagerness to hear the speaking and then to obey. And he doesn't, and Eli himself doesn't get it. You know, it, there's one, one call, he doesn't get it. There's two calls, he doesn't get it. Three calls. After the third call, then he finally gets it. We wish that Eli were eagerly anticipating the word of the Lord, even though in 3.1 it said the word of the Lord was rare. He still lived in the period of the judges where the Lord would, uh, would come upon people and speak. Right? At, least, at the very least, he would be anticipating God to do what God always does. But instead, he doesn't. He is hard of hearing. So I think here that we learn that there is a famine of the word of God for two reasons. 
One, because God had withdrawn the frequency of it, but also because he's a dull hearer. He's a man slow to hear. He seems almost disinterested. Now, for us today, we have the word of God. In the book of Hebrews, it says that God has spoken finally in his son. Hebrews chapter 1. And so it is through Christ's word that God speaks to us. So on his side, there is no famine. God has spoken to us. But we ought here to, to look at our own hearts and wonder if we are dull to hearing the word of God. We are all, in some ways, priests of God. We all have a ministry of reconciliation, as the Bible says. We are to minister to others. But are we dull in hearing with hearing the word of God? Are we unfamiliar, for example, with the conviction that the Spirit brings? Are we unfamiliar with the call of the Lord on our lives to live for Him and in Him alone? Friend, Samuel is eager, and so God gives him the word. Look at verses 10 to 14. This is the word here that the Lord brings to him. And the Lord came and stood calling, as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, Speak, for your servant hears. Then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I am about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. On that day I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. And I will declare to him that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. Therefore, I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by the sacrifice or offering forever. Just imagine, right? He's, he's this little boy is being charged now to not only hear the word of God, not only be attentive to it, but also to speak it. Imagine this little boy receiving the word of God. And what is the first word of God that he as a prophet and priest will, will give? It's a word of judgment. So in many ways, before receiving the call of God, here he is tested by God. Eli was like a father to him as he served underneath Eli. Will this bond be greater than the bond of creature creator? Listen to what happens in verse 15. Samuel lay until morning. Then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord. And Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. But Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. And he said, here I am. And Eli said, what was it that he told you? Do not hide it from me. May God do so to you. And more also, if you hide anything from me of all that he told you. So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And he said, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. Now, that section right there makes me think that Eli was, in fact, a genuine follower, follower of the Lord. He himself knows that he will be receiving a curse of God, judgment of God. And yet he tells Samuel, you better watch out lest the Lord judge you. And he says, you need to speak with the Lord if the Lord has given you a word. And so he does. This is his first, once again, this is Samuel's first prophetic word, a word of judgment against a wayward generation. But nevertheless, he passes the test and he gives this word. Now, how do we apply this today? Pastors are not specifically called like Samuel was, right? I'm not a kingmaker. But pastors are called to generally hear and speak God's word from his word. No new words from his word. And the words pastors are called to speak are not only the words of encouragement, but words of rebuke as necessary. 
You know, when people look for a new church, this quality of being able to rebuke with the word is generally not something people are looking for. Uh, usually what is on their radar is for pastors to please the hearer or even entertain the hearer. But according to this passage and other passages in Scripture, God desires that those who minister to his people be able to rebuke with the word of God. Titus chapter 1 verse 9 says that the elder must, elder which just means pastor, uh, must hold firmly to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and rebuke those who contradict it. So, friends, churches need pastors who will side with the honor of God, not ultimately with the honor of man. Churches need pastors who esteem God and not esteem ultimately man. This is what the Apostle Paul did. He rebuked Peter the Apostle when he was living in ways that were in contradiction to the gospel in the book of Galatians, for example. And this is, of course, what Jesus Christ did, is he rebuked those who claimed to walk after God's law, but whose hearts were far from God himself. So, friends, if you are visiting this church, maybe you're checking it out. Maybe you're uh, looking for a new church home, wanting to become a member. I hope you're looking for a church where the pastor and its members, the church's pastor and the church's members, if need be, are able to deliver hard words, but still in love to your sinful soul. Because if not, that church's ministry will eventually come to look more like Eli's marked by unrestraint and wickedness than like Samuel's ministry, which is marked by hearing, heeding, heeding, and speaking the words of God, and then, of course, living according to it. You want a church who will, in fact, when the case requires, actually speak words of rebuke. And so, you know, as as you guys are considering David to become another pastor of this church, uh, as, you know, Lord willing, we will take a vote in a couple months and, uh, you know, David will become another pastor of the church. You know, I know from personal experience that Dave is, David is uh, willing, he's able to ask hard questions of me, which is great. And I know that he is able to ask hard questions of you. And I find him, once again, to be a man who lives according to God's word. Praise God. But you, friend, as you are a regular member of the church, did you know that all people in the church, according to 1 Thessalonians 5.14, are encouraged to admonish one another, to rebuke one another? So, friends, you know, I don't know what kind of bonds you find to be primary or ultimate, church bonds, roommate bonds, family bonds, whatever, bond of blood. But, friends, you actually recognize that there is a greater bond between creature and creator that we are called to honor at all costs. It doesn't mean we, we should not love one another, speak things harshly in an, in an unnecessary kind of way. Uh, but we ought to be living for the glory of God, and that includes speaking hard things when necessary. And it also includes practicing church discipline, which means that if I'm living in unrepentant sin and I'm not repenting of it, so let's say I, God forbid, will, will be committing adultery or something like that. And you guys know it. You're supposed to come and talk to me. Say, you're supposed to plead with me and say, Jeremy, you need to repent of your sin because every marriage is supposed to point to Jesus's love for the church. And brother, what you are doing blurs God's love for the church. And you're sinning against your wife. You're sinning against your children. You're not living in holiness before the church. And then if I don't listen to you, the Bible says that you're supposed to discipline me. The Bible says that you're actually supposed to, to uh, remove me from the church roles. You're supposed to call me to not take the Lord's Supper. Of course, you want me to come to church where I'm hearing the preaching of the word of God, right? That's great. 
but you're actually supposed to take steps against my sin. And all of that, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 5, so that my soul would be saved, so that I would come to repent of my ongoing refusal to repent uh, and then to come to know Jesus Christ's forgiveness again. Friends, I hope you know that this church is willing to do that. We don't say that that's an easy thing to do. That is difficult, but we do so. We try to do so in love. And when necessary, we are supposed to speak words even of rebuke. Well, friends, to conclude, this is this hearing, heeding, and living according to the word of God is celebrated in Samuel's life. Look at verses 19 to 21. It says there, And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. Of course, really, while this is celebrated in Samuel's life, God is the one who is being celebrated. It is God who was doing something unique in salvation history with Samuel. He was raising up a king maker to establish the monarchy of his people. Friends, in many ways, once again, this points us to Jesus Christ, who is God's people's, God's people's true prophet. He is the word of God as he is God's people's true priest. He intercedes on our behalf through his own blood and he is our true king. If you notice from the passage that Oscar read for us earlier, the scripture passage, the narrative of Christ reads very similarly to this narrative of Samuel. You have Jesus attending to his father's will, Jesus at the temple, Jesus even growing in wisdom and stature before God and man. The setting is same. You have the Jewish leaders there in the gospels whose hearts are far from the Lord. But you have Christ who is the God man who accomplishes all that God intended him to do. And in a time when God's people were wayward. And what does Luke 2, 52 say? And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. It's a verse that prepares readers not only to gaze at upon a king maker, but to gaze upon the king himself, who is the word of God. That's what's going on when the gospel says that they're very aware of what's going on here in the old testament what's what uh, samuel is doing here as it says that he was growing in wisdom and stature with the lord and so the new testament comes along and says that just like samuel in that dark time so was jesus except he is the king the word of god the great high priest let's pray together Our Father in heaven, Lord, we find a lot of similarities between our own hearts and Hophni and Phineas's. And Lord, we do thank you for your grace and your kindness, your word that arrested us and brought your grace and kindness to us, a word of hope when we were deserving of judgment. Lord, we look upon the cross and see mercy and grace and love. We thank you, Lord, that in our own darkness, you broke into the darkness and shined the light of Jesus Christ, who is the light of the world. 
And you, according to your grace, have turned our hearts. You've spoken to us and turned our hearts so that we might find you and worship you. Father, we ascribe you all of the glory that you deserve. We pray, Lord, that we would never be like Hophni and Phinehas, that we would never know a day of setting you aside and setting your law aside, setting your word aside to live for our own and even where we do. We pray, Lord, that you would work repentance in us so fast. We pray, Lord, that by your spirit you would bring upon us the weight of a godly guilt in recognition that we have sinned against you, our Father, but just as you are just and righteous, so you are loving. We know that a wonderful picture in a father's earthly love or a mother's earthly love that joyfully receives rebellious children back and desires the well-being of the children. Lord, we thank you that you are the ultimate father. You receive us back. You call us towards you. You welcome us back in, even though we were straying like lost sheep. Lord, we thank you that we have opportunity, everybody has opportunity to return to the shepherd of our souls. We thank you for the grace that secures us. May we never scorn your sacrifice. May we never scorn the great high priest of Jesus Christ and our wonderful, marvelous king. In your name we pray. Amen.